Hello. Welcome, welcome, welcome. So just to make sure you're on the right flight, um, you, I hope, are here for the Commonplace Live event, a reading featuring guests of my podcast. I'm Rachel Zucker, and these guests are um, Gabrielle Calvacaresi, Adam Faulkner, Sabrina Oramark, and Ross Gay. Um, just out of curiosity, uh, will you raise your hand if you have not ever listened to a single episode of Commonplace? Awesome! So thank you guys for coming. I have no idea why you are here. (laughs) But I'm so glad that you are. So I assume that other people in the room have listened to at least one episode. I I sort of want to ask, but I'm not going to, so don't raise your hand. Like, if there's anyone here who's listened to every single one. Oh, there are people who are waving. That really, I mean, I I have no words for that. Um, (laughs) So... I'm Rachel Zucker. I started this podcast in the summer of 2016, and just a few days ago, we put out our 67th episode. Hey, so I just want to break in here for a moment before we get on with this extraordinary reading and tell you a few things. This audio was recorded on March 29th, 2019 at the Association of Writing Programs Conference in Portland, Oregon. Many thanks to the readers, to the live audience, and to AWP. Many thanks to Dorothy, a publishing project, and Algonquin for offering us copies of Sabrina Oramark's Wild Milk and Ross Gay's The Book of Delights, which were both published since Ross and Sabrina were on Commonplace. These books will be available to a few Commonplace book members. Speaking of the Commonplace Book Club, thank you to all Commonplace patrons, several of whom I had the great pleasure of meeting at AWP. Total thrill. Thank you to all of our listeners who came up and introduced themselves to me. Several of you asked to help out, and I've got a few requests. First of all, Commonplace really needs more patrons. I'll say more about the creative and financial health of the podcast, and of me, at the end of this episode. But if you want to become a patron, please go to commonpodcast.com. Some of you have written or spoken to me about wanting to contribute to Commonplace, but not being able to spare money at this time. If you have skills or time that you'd like to donate, that would be terrific. We're especially looking for people with significant design experience or branding skills, Also, people who might be willing to help us make transcriptions of the show for deaf and hearing impaired folks, or people who know about grant writing or have experience running arts organizations or nonprofits. Our next episode will feature a commonplace reading, also recorded during AWP, with Jericho Brown, Erica Meitner, T.C. Tolbert, Yin Yi, Tommy Pico, Morgan Parker, and Janine Joseph. And we'd like to include your voice as well. If you have a comment, question, suggestion, or perhaps a friendly provocation about Commonplace, please call and leave us a message on our Google voicemail. The number is 347-762-3405. If you didn't catch the number, don't worry. Just go to commonpodcast.com and you'll find that number, the invitation, and more information about this episode and other episodes there. But call us soon. We have a quick turnaround time for episode 69. Please try to leave your message before or by April 24th.
And lastly, for now, a personal request. My book, Sound Machine, is coming out this August. So if you run a reading series or teach at a university or high school and would like to invite me to read or speak about my book or Sound Machine, the audio project, or about Commonplace, please contact me at rachel at commonpodcast.com. I'm trying to set up readings for fall of 2019 and spring of 2020. Okay, back to this amazing reading. You'll hear me say more about all of these things at the end of the episode. We're here right now for this event. Um, This is a reading, um, not a panel, but there are going to be like a little weirdo things because that makes me happy. Um, And I'm overjoyed to bring you these four poets, Gabrielle Calvacaresi, otherwise known as episode 42, um, (laughs) Dr. Adam Faulkner, episode 36, Ross Gay, 25, and Sabrina Oramark, 33. So if you want to know more about them, like a lot more, just listen to those episodes because you're going to learn a lot more about them. How do you listen? iTunes, or you can go to our, our website, which is <laughs> www.commonpodcast.com. Okay. So, but for now, I'm just going to introduce them very briefly in the order in which they'll read, beginning with Gabrielle Calvacaresi. Gabrielle is the author of Rocket Fantastic. <laughs> They live in Carborough, North Carolina, and teach at UNC Chapel Hill. Who's going to win today, by the way? Anyone who's watching March Madness? You heard it here. <laughs> Sorry about that. Dr. Adam Faulkner is a poet, educator, and arts and culture strategist. He is the author of The Willies, Adoption, and the founder and executive director of the pioneering diversity consulting initiative, The Dialogue Arts Project. Yes. Ross Gay. Um, is the author of Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude and more recently the essay collection The Book of Delights. Uh, Ross helps Shayla Lawson with the Tenderness Project, an online site of tendernesses, Ross says, much smaller, of course, than the offline one, which is vast and which we hope with the Tenderness Project to point to, to remember, and maybe even to cultivate. We have Sabrina Oramark, who is the author of the poetry collections The Babies and Simtsum. Wild Milk, her first book of fiction, is recently out from Dorothy, a publishing project. And for the Paris Review, she writes a monthly column on fairy tales and motherhood entitled Happily. So um, each person is going to read, and then I've asked if they wanted to answer a question. I suggested a few questions, um, things like, how was being a guest on Commonplace different from other reading interview experiences you've had? Or what's your favorite Commonplace episode or moment other than your own episode? What is something you want Rachel to know that you're pretty sure she does not know? Or a suggestion you have for Commonplace, maybe something we could do better? So they might answer those questions when they come up to read. And then I also said, why not ask a question, either to one of the other readers, to Commonplace, to you, the audience, um, or I don't know, to the world. So you might hear that. And then hopefully at the end, we'll have a little time to either answer these questions or just leave them unanswered but asked, which is also something that's really wonderful. Um, The last thing I'm going to say is that This is a very emotional experience for me. Um, 
Each of these writers and my conversations with them, their work, which by which I mean their art, their work by which I mean their teaching, their activism, their research, their community building, has deeply, specifically, practically, spiritually, abstractly changed my life in ways that include but are not limited to changing the way that I teach and what I teach, signing up for a John Kabat-Zinn mindfulness journey, rethinking Passover, my favorite holiday, which is coming up, and at a really uh, painful moment, remembering a form that one of them used um, in a poem that I needed to write really the most difficult poem that I've ever written. And so what I'm really saying is that these writers and many, many of the other commonplace writers have taught me how to write, how to work, how to teach, how to believe, how to be quiet, how to speak up, how to live, and really how to stay alive. And I know that for some of you who value this podcast, similar things have happened. And I just want to thank you for being here and present to you, beginning with Gabrielle Calvacaresi. Hello. Ooh, it is so good to be here. Um, you know, and one of the things I realized uh, is, like, I feel like this room already feels a lot like what the podcast feels like. Do you feel that? Like, that to me is something, I'll read and then talk a little bit more about this, I think, but that, I mean, that to me is one of the things that's so moving is, like, that there are these spaces that are made for us that just, like, open to us and allow us to become, either become our most authentic selves or just like allow us to imagine the world we want to live in, you know what I mean? And and be with each other in that way. And I just, I want to say how good this room feels right now. Like, and also like, as right? Woo! Oh my God, can we do it? Um, you know, like for instance, as a person with a visual disability and a balance issue, to hear you sort of saying the things that I think probably every panel is supposed to say. Everybody is seen in this space and felt, and I just love that. I'm just going to start with a poem. Um, it's called uh, Hammond B3 Organ Cistern. Hammond B3 Organ Cistern. The days I don't want to kill myself are extraordinary. Deep bass. All the people in the streets waiting for their high fives and leaping, I mean leaping when they see me. I am the sun-filled god of love, or at least an optimistic undersecretary. <laughs> there should be a word for it. The days you wake up and do not want to slit your throat. Money in the bank. Enough for an iced green tea every weekday and Saturday and Sunday. It's like being in the armpit of a Hammond B3 organ. Just reeks of gratitude and funk, the funk of ages. I am not going to ruin my love's life today. It's like the time I said yes to gray sneakers, but then the salesman said, wait. <laughs> and there, out of the back room, like the bakery's first biscuits, Bright blue kicks, <laughs> iridescent, like a scarab, 
<laughs> oh, who am I kidding? It was nothing like a scarab. It was like bright blue fucking sneakers. <laughs> oh my God, I did not want to die that day. Why don't we talk about it, how good it feels? And if you don't know, then you're lucky, but also, you poor thing. <laughs> Bring the band out on the stoop. Let the whole neighborhood hear. Come on, everybody, say it with me nice and slow. No pills, no cliff, no brains on the floor. Bring the bass back. No rope, no hose, not today, Satan. Every day I wake up with my good fortune and news of my demise. Don't keep it from me. Why don't we have a name for it? Bring the bass back. Bring the band out on the stoop. Hallelujah. It's interesting, when I read that poem last night, oh, oh, oh thank you. I mean, I feel like it's what, day two of AWP and we are all still alive. <laughs> yeah! <laughs> kind of. Um, I do feel that way, though. And it's interesting, I read this poem last night, and it was so full of joy. It was such an amazing experience. And, um, and today it's full of joy, too, but I almost started, like, crying when I was reading it right now. A, I think because I feel very comfortable being vulnerable in this room with all of you. And also because I don't know if anyone else is having this experience. Like, it's wonderful here, and it's a lot, right? Like, <sighs> could we all do it? And then it's hard, like, not to cry sometimes, right? But it's also emotional because I think a lot about the conversation we had, right? And that um, one of the things that was really different for me about the Commonplace podcast, I have made the decision in my life to be, like, as honest as I possibly can be at any given moment. And part of that is because I grew up and a lot of things were happening to me and around me <clears throat> that I tried to talk about and I was told I was lying. Um, and so I was, I was talked about a lot growing up as a liar. And so um, I try to, as much as I can, tell the truth, whatever that means. And one of the things that is to me really interesting and beautiful about the experience I had on Commonplace, and I think this is maybe in general for the episodes, was that like you opened this space, you let all these ghosts in. I felt so safe that I thought like I can be um, honest in a different way than I even think is possible. And I can also, I could like be really unsafe in that space and like I would be okay. Mm -hmm. I felt very held in that time. And I think that there are so many wonderful interviewers. There's so many wonderful places in which one, when you get to this remarkable place that you know so many of us get to be in um, where we, you can talk about your life but I don't think that I had ever had an, a conversation and a space where I felt like there was just an, a new kind of economy being made in front of me that had to do with the act of talking about making poems as also a way in which like, we could kind of heal in front of each other and also imagine a new world being built. And I think that that's something that I try to do a lot in my poems as well and that I try to do out in the world. And um, I guess insofar as I have like a question, it would have something to do with that, which is like, 
how can we continue to take the kind, those kinds of spaces of vulnerability and safety and consider that a, a kind of new economy that we can move into any space like this, just in our day-to-day -day interactions with people. I think there are many people up here whose poems and work does this, but um, I think I'm interested in that. Like, how can I be part of the, the commonplace economy, which is free from capitalism and all these other crushing forces that uh, I don't actually think want me to live like most days. So that's what I'd say. I'm so happy to be here. I want to hear everybody else. Hello, everyone. Hello. Um, that was beautiful. You are. Thank you. <laughs> it does feel good in here. Uh, and Gabrielle asked us to breathe. I'm going to ask you to sing. Is everybody okay with that? Yeah. Eh, it's a little weird. I think only the first 10 rows just affirmed that they were okay with that. <laughs> everybody rows like 10 through 25 back there just kind of blinked dumbly at me. It's all right. It's easy. It'll also sound really good on the podcast. Don't be the one that doesn't do it. <laughs> if you're all right, say you. Yeah. All right. I think there might also be an echo, too. If you're all right, say yay. Yay. And if you're all right, say yeah. Yeah. So quickly look on either side of you. Just so you're familiar with the face of the person refusing to participate in this exercise. There's nothing like, there's nothing like group accountability. Yeah. If you're all right, say yeah. And if you're all right, say yeah. yeah. Say yeah. yeah. Say yeah. Yeah. Y'all are beautiful. <laughs> uh, um, this poem uh, is a poem that I wrote about my grandmother. Um, which in, in no small way is kind of uh, a testament to the, the work that the organization that I run does, which we'll talk a little bit about in a second because it's related to my conversation with Rachel on Commonplace. Um, and it is largely that we, we believe in art as a tool for connecting human beings with each other and saying the things about their own lives that make it really difficult to show up and be ourselves, specifically as that pertains to issues of race and gender and sex. How is art a tool to help us be more courageous actors in our own lives? Um, and this poem is called, uh, My Grandma Calls Me Barack. Um, my grandmother, toward the end of her life, uh, was sort of drifting in and out of coherence and some days she would remember who I was, other days she wouldn't. And um, on this particular day, she called me Barack Obama. And if, if you're ever in the position where someone refers to you as Barack Obama <laughs> and your politics align with mine, then you might roll with it for a second, right? <laughs> I promise I'm a good person, but my grandma calls me Barack. My grandma calls me John, calls me Jeff, 
says she loved me in that new East of Eden movie. <laughs> Asks me by her bedside how I'm enjoying the White House, how that pretty Michelle is doing and if I've been able to get any sleep. She says she's ready to go home, just unplug the spaghetti, smells the meds in her milkshake from a mile away. No goody goo for me. No moxes for this foxes. No trickson for this Nixon, damn it. I tell her the White House is nice, but it is a lot of responsibility. <laughs> I am going completely gray, as you've probably seen on TV. She clicks her molars softly to mirror the rain on the window outside. Her eyes a glazy grizzle jumping from window to TV to ceiling fan. All those rooms, she sighs. You must get lost. I tell her I do, daily. It's hard to remember who I am. This healthcare business, the whole gay marriage thing. All these men on magazine covers diving into one another. The quiet gawk and glow of teenage boys across cornfield and dirt drive America. Her eyes stop skimming the room then. They settle on the bottom of the eighth inning in the corner. She calls me Mark, calls me Aaron. She squints and points a bony finger in my direction, skin slipping from both sides like a wet dish rag draped over an oven handle. She calls me nothing. Thank you. Thank you. Um, reflecting on sort of the, the really remarkable journey that was uh, our conversation, I'm so delighted to be here and to read amongst y'all and for you. I appeared on Commonplace um, on behalf of the organization I work with and developed called the Dialogue Arts Project. And I sat for what felt like many hours <laughs> um, with Rachel alongside Carlos Andres Gomez, who is a poet and actor and facilitator for our org, and Lauren Whitehead, who is one of the most phenomenal whirlwind talents and culture workers I have ever seen in my life. And we were really fortunate to be in the good, caring hands of Rachel. And we just chatted about our work for a while. And, and the thing that I think really struck me or startled me about what happened in our conversation that does not happen for me in many conversations, certainly ones that are being recorded, um, when I talk honestly and openly about my work, was that we started talking a lot about what our workshop model looks like, right? We often facilitate these training experiences for teachers or leadership groups or corporate boardrooms sometimes. Um, but we use the arts as a tool to help people talk about issues of difference and identity and talking about sort of what texts really anchor our work and sharing stories about times when that's gone really well. And we've felt like we've done really powerful work in helping support folks. Other times it's gone really poorly. It's like throwing a firework in a mailbox and hoping everything resolves itself. Um, we talked a lot about the work of Audre Lorde. Um, Audre Lorde's work underpins a great deal 
of how we position ourselves in the world as an organization um, and the space from which we encourage people to write and tell their stories because it is a better alternative than silence. Um, and a huge part of our work is really centered around uh, the, the, the piece, the transformation of silence into language and action. And one of the powerful sort of breakthroughs that happened for me in our conversation with Rachel was um, another side of what um, the transformation of language, transformation of silence into language and action entails. Uh, and we were talking a lot about what was happening in, in the world at the moment, which was, um, it was Harvey and Charlottesville was happening or was had yet to happen maybe a week after that. Um, but really what we do after all is said and done is we push people to say the courageous thing. And in spaces where our politics are what they are and we're working toward a humanizing pedagogy and a pedagogy of love, um, it makes sense. And it, I don't think would be presumptuous to assume that everybody in here understands what that means. But something really powerful that we got into our conversation around was what happens when folks whose visions for the world uh, don't align with mine and also subscribe to language being more powerful than silence? Um, and to what extent do we get to choose who's courageous and who's not? If it is courageous to say the thing that's hard, it can't just be courageous to say the thing that's hard for me and for the folks whose politics I agree with. So we got into a really powerful discourse around Audre Lorde and the rhetoric of Trump in a way that for me was very scary um, because I often don't think about my work um, in any way, shape or form as sort of subscribing to a rhetoric that I think similarly uh, wants me dead daily and is making it harder for people I love to live and to thrive. Um, so uh, there was something very powerful in the air and the comfort and the quality and the richness and the time we took to really get there in our conversation, which was probably like minute 90 <laughs> of a two hour interview that, that made it really powerful. So in as much as I think I, I have uh, a question for us, um, it's revolving around that. It's, it's, um, asking what kinds of philosophies that we believe in or subscribe to um, do we reserve only for us and for folks that we care about and what happens when those intentions um, are picked up and carried across the finish line that isn't necessarily the one we're fighting for. And I, I think that I will, I will leave it at that. Hello. Hello. How are you? Good. <laughs> Good to be here. Thank you for bringing us together. Um, first thing, I'll make an observation about the, the interviews, um, which is an observation. They're too fucking long. <laughs> which is so beautiful. <laughs> And that's the thing. I, it's like one of the things about those interviews and why at minute 90, yeah. it's like, boom, yeah. you know, yeah. there we are, you know. 
Um, so maybe you can tell that was me actually being like, that's the best thing about these things. They're so fucking long. <laughs> I also want to say, though, on that business of length and taking time, there is something that disrupts the orderliness of sort of thinking and, and sort of like capturing. It's so anti-capture, not anti, it's so open, so common. It's so common. And there is this way that it is such a kind of disruption to a kind of orderliness of thinking and being together that feels like a kind of, that's, you know, to, you know, it is a kind of common space where people are together sort of working, working shit out. But it does have to take space. And that's the thing. I like, I love that. Like, if you just go through all the interviews, like, so many of them are so fucking long. <laughs> And it's like, and it might be the kind of thing, too, where you can't do the whole thing at once, you know? Like, you might have to take it in bits, you know? And anyway, this is called loitering, go figure. Loitering. I'm sitting at a cafe in Detroit where in the door window is the sign with the commands, no soliciting, no loitering, stacked like an anvil. I have a fiscal relationship with this establishment, which I developed by buying a coffee, and which makes me a patron. And so even though I subtly dozed in the late afternoon sun pouring under the awning, the two bucks spent protects me, at least temporarily, from the designation of loiterer. Though the dozing, if done long enough, or ostentatiously enough, or with enough delight, might transgress me over. Loitering, as you know, means fucking off. Or doing jack shit. Or jacking off. And given that two of these three terms have sexual connotations, it's no great imaginative leap to know that it is a repressed and repressive sexual and otherwise culture, at least, that invented and criminalized the concept. Someone reading this might very well keel over considering loitering a concept and not a fact. <laughs> Such are the gales of delight. <laughs> the Webster's definition of loiter reads thus, to stand or wait around idly without apparent purpose, and to travel indolently. You know, I can't even say the word indolently. If, I just said it pretty good there, but it's such a stupid fucking word. That's the thing. <laughs> to stand or wait around idly without apparent purpose, and to travel indolently with frequent pauses. That's illegal. <laughs> Among the synonyms for this behavior are linger, loaf, laze, lounge, lollygag, dawdle, amble, saunter, meander, putter, dilly-dally, and mosey. <laughs> Any one of these words in the wrong frame of mind might be considered critique or nouned epithet. Lollygagger! <laughs> or you loafer! <laughs> Indeed, lollygag was one of the words my mom would use to cajole us while jingling her keys when she was waiting on us, which, judging from the visceral response I had while writing that memory, must have been not quite infrequent. All of these words, to me, imply having a nice day. 
they imply having the best day. <laughs> they also imply being unproductive, which leads to being, even if only temporarily, non-consumptive. And this is a crime in America. And more explicitly criminal, depending upon any number of quickly apprehended visual cues. For instance, the darker your skin, the more likely you are to be loitering. Though a Patagonia jacket could do some work to disrupt that perception. <laughs> a Patagonia jacket, colorful pants, tree-torn sneakers with short socks, an Ivy League ball cap, and a thick book, not the Bible, and you're almost golden. <laughs> almost. There is a Venn diagram someone might design, several of them, that will make visual our constant internal negotiation towards safety. And like the best comedy, it will make us laugh hard before saying, Lord. It occurs to me that laughter and loitering are kissing cousins, as both bespeak an interruption of production and consumption. And it's probably for this reason that I have been among groups of non-white people laughing hard who have been shushed in a Cadoba in Bloomington, in a bar in Fishtown, in the Harvard Club at Harvard. The shushing perhaps reminds how threatening to the order are our bodies in non-productive, non-consumptive delight. The moment of laughter not only makes consumption impossible, you might choke, but if the laugh is hard enough, if the shit talk is just right, food or drink might fly from your mouth. <laughs> if not, and this kind of hurts, your nose. And if your body is supposed to be one of the consumables, if it has been, if it is one of the consumables around which so many ideas of production and consumption have been structured in this country, well, there you go. There is a Carrie Mae Weems photograph of a woman in what looks to be some kind of textile factory with an angel embroidered to the left breast of her shirt where her heart resides. The woman, like the angel, has her arms splayed wide almost in ecstasy, as though to embrace everything, so in the midst of her glee is she. Every time I see that photo, after I smile and have a genuine bodily opening on account of witnessing this delight, which is a moment of black delight, I look behind her for the boss. Uh-oh, I think. You're in a moment of non-productive delight. Heads up. <laughs> which points to another of the synonyms for loitering, which I almost wrote as delight, taking one's time. For while the previous list of synonyms allude to time, taking one's time makes it kind of plain. For the crime of loitering, the idea of it is about ownership of one's own time, which must be sometimes wrested from the assumed owners of it who are not you, back to the rightful, who is. And while having interpolated the policing of delight such that I am on the lookout for the overseer, even in photos I have studied hundreds of times, on the lookout always for the policer of delight, my work is studying this kind of glee, being on the lookout for it and aspiring to it, floating away from the factory as she seems to be. Thank you. And I just have two questions. And one question is sort of a continuation of something that you said during your interview, ghosts were allowed in. How do we let more ghosts in? That's one question. And the other question is, how do we grow 
How do we point to and elevate and grow what is common to us? Hello, that was just extraordinary. Um, at one point I considered trying to sneak out at the very end, because I don't... Um, So, you know, one thing um, I really felt talking to Rachel um, and being um, on the podcast was that I thought, what is this like? Um, what is this conversation like? And, you know, as I heard you guys talk about your experiences, um, you know, in terms of feeling like it's this place where everybody and everything belongs, um, and then, of course, you know, the, the sprawl of it. And uh, I thought, you know, it's a poem. When I was talking to Rachel, I felt like I feel when I'm at the center of a poem I am writing. And it might be because um, Rachel is a witch, <laughs> a good witch. Um, uh, but it felt like, you know, I was under that kind of magical spell that you are under when you are inside of a poem um, and you don't know where you're going. Um, and it's that beautiful place of um, that kind of answerlessness. Um, so for that, I am deeply, incredibly grateful. And there's something so intimate and performative happening simultaneously that was just also felt very, very poem-like. And my question is, you know, how, how can we keep creating more of those spaces? You know, how do, you know, I, I feel greedy now, um, but, you know, how could we have that more and more and more just in terms of how we talk to each other and how we listen to each other um, as we move through the world? I'm going to read a, a story poem called There's a Hole in the Bucket. I wrote it when um, my husband was going through a health crisis, and I kept thinking, you know, how do you fix that, that hole in the bucket? You guys know that song, right? I, will, I won't make everybody sing. <laughs> and I can't sing, so... <laughs> There's a hole in the bucket. I look at the bucket. There is unquestionably a hole. An entire family can live in this hole. I see the hole, I yell. Call Mendelssohn. My husband, dear Henry, calls Mendelssohn. Mendelssohn comes right over. We look at the bucket. There is a hole. Mendelssohn studies it. He takes some notes. The southernmost edge of the hole is silent, possibly frozen. The northernmost, rough and forgotten. Mendelssohn sniffs it. Smells like gone, he says, just as I thought. Mendelssohn cups his ear, listens 
to its center and jots down a slight trace of heart, the bare cry of a faraway boy. With what shall we, asks dear Henry, fix it? The flower in dear Henry's breast pocket is a pink I've never seen before. Lean close, says Mendelssohn. We lean close. This is going to be a nightmare. Dear Henry and I nod our heads. We know already we will need to fetch the water with a bucket to fix the hole, but we will have no bucket to fetch the water to fix the hole because the bucket with which we would fetch the water has a hole. A white balloon wafts over dear Henry's head. We are failing miserably. With what, asks dear Henry, shall we fix it? He asks again because even though we know how everything ends, the ending remains unimaginable. With straw, says Mendelssohn hopelessly. With straw, I guess, says Mendelssohn again. I look around for straw. Dear Henry opens a can of sardines. He pulls back the tin lid and offers me one. No thanks, I say. Looking for straw, I say. He offers a sardine to Mendelssohn. Why not, shrugs Mendelssohn. Sardines are caught mainly at night, says dear Henry. I know, says Mendelssohn, chewing slowly on the fish. They are caught when they rise to the surface to feed on plankton, says dear Henry. This is when they're caught, says dear Henry. They caught, they're caught at night when they're the hungriest. I know, says Mendelssohn. Everybody knows. Except, I guess, for the sardines, says dear Henry. Mendelssohn laughs. It's not a joke, says dear Henry. Sorry, says Mendelssohn. I'm sorry, too, says dear Henry. For what, asks Mendelssohn. Just for everything, says dear Henry. The bucket and the hole and just everything. Even though I am certain when I find the straw, the straw will be too long, and I will need to cut the straw with an axe, but the axe will be too dull, and I will need to sharpen the axe with a stone, but the stone will be too dry, and with a hole in the bucket, there is no hope for ever fetching water to wet the stone, I am nevertheless still looking around for straw. This is the song we're in. I hate this bucket. I hate this bucket, I yell. More than the hole, asks dear Henry. He looks so sad. The hole is the hole that the hole should be. It's the bucket that's destroying us, dear Henry. It's the bucket. I look at Mendelssohn. I mean, I really look at him. Every day, he looks more and more like my mother. With what shall we fix it? Mendelssohn. I am exhausted. How many times can a person ask the same question? Mendelssohn kneels gently beside the bucket and reaches all the way in. His dark, soft curls cover his eyes. Liza, says dear Henry, grabbing my arm, I think we're dying. 
With a stone in his hand, Mendelssohn reaches all the way into the bucket, past the hole, past God and summer and almonds and shame and the ocean and mice and love and fevers and worship and snails and teeth and lilac and forgiveness and a song about a bucket with a hole in it and past all the children singing the song and past their children singing it and their children's children and past my broken heart until he reaches the oldest water and wets the stone. He pulls the stone out and sets it right on top of dear Henry's head as if dear Henry were a tombstone and I've come to his grave to mourn him. The wet stone glistens so brightly I need to cover my eyes. With what, asks dear Henry, shall we? I can barely hear him. The song is fading like a song. It is what it is. I remove the wet stone from the top of dear Henry's head and bury it in my pocket. I notice that the crack shaped like a bucket on dear Henry's cheek is spreading. There's a hole in that bucket too. I look over at Mendelssohn. He is building a whole entire city out of buckets. There are holes in all of these, says Mendelssohn, who is now covered in holes, under a sky covered in holes, lit by a moon covered in holes, kept by prayers covered in holes. Off in the distance, I can already see the people coming to live in Mendelssohn's city of holes. There are so many people, and they are so beautiful and hopeful, and they too are covered in holes. They each carry a bucket, and in each bucket is a hole. This is the song we're in. So, wow. Just to restate the questions as I misheard them, because that's always what's happening. Um, and I'm sorry for creatively changing them. It wasn't intentional. How do we take vulnerability and turn it into a new economy? Do we reserve the courage to speak only for those who we agree with? How do we let more ghosts in? How do we cultivate and grow what is common between us? How do we create more intimate and performative spaces where we can talk to each other with love and understanding and compassion? Um, so those are, those are a few questions. Um, do you guys have some? Hello, Commonplace listener. I hope you enjoyed that reading even a small fraction as much as I did. I loved it. The feeling in the room was incredible, and it's a thrill to be able to share it in some form with those of you who are not there. I want to reiterate the invitation to have your question, comment, suggestion, or friendly provocation included in the next episode if you call and leave us a message by April 24th. The instructions, including the phone number, 347-762-3405, will be on commonpodcast.com and in our newsletter. 
For this episode, some members of the Commonplace Book Club will receive copies of Wild Milk by Sabrina Oramark and The Book of Delights by Ross Gay. Thank you to Dorothy, a publishing project, and Algonquin Books. Patrons of all levels will get access to the short Q&A that followed the reading you just heard. The sound quality is pretty uneven, but the content is wonderful. Ross, Gabby, Adam, Sabrina, and I answer questions from the audience, including how is Ross's garden doing, and how to accept the hard, difficult forces of reality and keep living. We talk about hanging out, indolence, the effects of my recording the podcast in my home, the closeness of joy and pain, the danger of losing wonderment, and how to protect one's vulnerability, how to find balance in one's life. I want to briefly address that last question here and say a few words about my health and commonplace's health. This podcast is a shining joy to make. I've recorded, sound edited, and released conversations with more than 78 people, all but two of whom I've sat with face-to-face. Most of these conversations have lasted more than two hours. This means that in the past three years, I've read books or poems by each of these people, listened to interviews with them, thought about them, prepped to talk to them, sat attentively in a room with them, listened to these conversations over and over, thinking about how to present these conversations and artists to you, how to promote these artists' work, how to do them justice, and how to act and create and live and make this podcast as justly as possible. And it has been an honor. But it has also been exhausting. I've made this podcast while teaching, applying for full-time jobs, applying for grants and prizes, finishing two books, mothering three sons, embarking on the adventure of Sound Machine Audio, which involved running a large Kickstarter campaign, my first, possibly my last. And during these years, there have been a great many things in my family life, joyful, beautiful, shocking, painful, confusing, stressful. I've sensed in the past year or so that I've been working way too hard and this is not sustainable. And then, somewhat suddenly, this past February, about an hour or so after recording a conversation with Alicia Jo Rabins, I realized I was physically extremely unwell. It turned out that I was experiencing the dizziness, breathlessness, and mental disorientation of anemia due to heavy perimenopausal bleeding. Now, when I go back and listen to the John Bewin episode, I can hear that anemia in my voice, but I didn't know it yet. I didn't register the increasing tiredness and lack of mental clarity until I found myself totally fogged in. In March, I traveled to Taiwan to see where my mother died and to meet and thank the people who helped her when she became suddenly very ill. It was a difficult trip, physically and emotionally. I went from there to Japan and from Japan to Portland for AWP. By the time I arrived at AWP, honestly, I was thinking about putting Commonplace on hiatus. But when I got to Portland, 
When I felt the energy in the room at the reading you just heard, when we celebrated Commonplace at Passage's Bookstore, which you'll hear during the next episode, when I met so many listeners face-to-face, when someone whose name I can't remember now came up to me on the airplane on the way home to tell me how much Commonplace means to her, I'm not going to stop making the podcast. I'm not even going to put it on a long hiatus. But I am going to have to do some thoughtful restructuring. I need to figure out how to run Commonplace, promote my next book, make and promote my audio project, be a good wife, mom, teacher, take care of my health. Each one of these things is a precious, holy gift. I need to figure out how to make sure that doing all of them doesn't ruin each of them. I need to make sure that I have not turned my heart and soul work into a kind of factory. I've got fabulous people working with me, and I believe that the Commonplace team and the brilliant community of listeners will be able to figure this out. Our next episode will air in about a week, hopefully with some of your thoughts and comments as well. And after that, we've got great episodes coming up. We've already recorded these with Jennifer Croft, Alicia Joe Rabins, Victoria Chang, and an episode about Taiwan and so much more. In the meantime, I wish those of you who celebrate Passover a meaningful, wonderful holiday. I wish all of us a season of freedom, belonging, and forgiveness and that the next song we find ourselves in will be one full of freedom from physical, emotional, and political oppression. I wish that all of us may be surrounded by people who know us and love us for who we are, and that each of us will feel the strength and hopefulness of spring. Thank you to the wonderful Commonplace team, Christine LaRusso, Nicholas Fuenzalita, Doreen Wang, Becca DiGregorio, and Daniel Schiffman. You're listening to music written and performed by Moses Zucker-Gorin. Thank you for listening. <laughs>